Welcome to Standing in Her Power Global. I am your host, Penny Sophocles. In this podcast, I speak to unique and interesting women to hear their stories and their individual approaches to life and work. Each one offers living examples of how women are evolving our society for the better. They demonstrate what they can do, you can do too. Welcome to Standing in Her Power Global, the podcast that interviews and talks with fascinating and powerful women who are doing some interesting things in the world. So today I have with me Nadine Rose, a social sustainability consultant. Nadine, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Nadine has recently um, completed a master's in, in international security, where she was looking at the security the human security needs of farmers at the bottom of the supply chain in Kenya and um, their interactions with uh, corporates in the um, Western world. Um, she's now moving that project forward. And to start, I'd really be interested, Nadine, for you to talk to us about what your current project is about. Hi, Penny. So thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, and so... Currently, I am working on a startup, um, which is to take investors out to Kenya to see ESG and sustainability best practice for themselves on the ground, because increasingly there's a disconnect between investors at the top, so predominantly impact investors at the moment, who really want to see the impact and the social value that's being created within their supply chains at the bottom of the sort of global supply chain. Um, Kenya is a good country to visit because A, it's um, got many fascinating businesses, it's ripe for investment, there are many sectors there. So the idea is to take investors to see a mix of projects. So probably mining, agriculture, and possibly sugarcane or other um, kind of enterprises over there and to spend time with stakeholders so really to sit down as sort of an equal group of people to discuss each other's perspectives and sort of the reality of what life is like from all points of view um, oh, yeah so that sounds, sort of sounds, fasc sounds fascinating and and what do you think investors uh, want to get out of this uh, opportunity that you're going to be offering them so I think it's a solution to this ongoing challenge of this gap in understanding um, of really being able to see what stakeholder engagement and license to operate mean in practice. So understanding communities and the workers themselves, what it is that they would like business to be doing in order to have that engagement within their environment. Yeah, because investors, um, certainly in the UK and Europe and uh, America, sold this label, ESG. Yes, you invest in our ESG fund. Um, but actually, it's becoming clear that actually that, that is a very loose label on a lot of activities that are perhaps not ESG compliant. And, and, and actually, there isn't probably any standards of compliance at the moment. So what's your what's your view? Uh, what do you think investors will get when you take them to Kenya? I think it, it will be enlightening um, in the sense that nobody can know until they've seen it. So you can be reading 
sort of understanding from listening to other people's perspectives, but until you see it yourself, you can't understand the complexities and the nuances. So every country will be different, every sector will be different, every community will be different. So it really is sort of nailing it in the sense that you have to see it with your own eyes and hear from those people directly to have a better understanding. And then you can bring those learnings back to sort of head office, wherever you're working, and share that with ESG teams, with other investors, within the sort of sustainability strategy that now is supposedly incorporated within an ent entire organization. So it's not sitting within one department, but sustainability now is being rolled out throughout organizations. So it's to help organizations have that understanding. Because I, I'm also aware that you um, relate and have related in your researches and projects with other with corporations as well, because at, at the end of the day, somewhere or another, you know, the supply chains means that uh, whatever farmers in Kenya or the mining industries or whatever um, are sending products to the West and sending products to their organisations. So what's your uh, engagement with corporations? Um, so the thing is, we're not there yet. So there are many companies that are doing well and are leaders in the field. So whether it's Body Shop or, um, I mean, Anglo-American, I look at their website a lot and on the face of it, they are, they are taking a leadership role and they are putting in high standards, they're meeting those high standards. But when you see it from the perspective of the on the ground, the farmers themselves or the mine workers, life isn't improving very quickly or dramatically for them. So right. it's how to build those solutions into business models. Okay, very good. So as you can see, Nadine, you've got a, a, a fascinating perspective on the world because of the researches and work that you've done um, in your life. Um, I'd like to now ask you about where you've come from and what you've done and what has led you to this point. So perhaps you can start by telling me about your family and the environment in which you were brought up. Um, so I would say I've been lucky. My father was a diplomat. Um, and he and my mother both were in the foreign office. So they had had adventurous lives themselves. Um, so my father's first role was in Afghanistan and he drove out to Afghanistan from the UK as a sort of a young 20 something year old. Um, and my mother set off for Tokyo on her own. I think she was only 21, didn't come back to England for three years. So that was a long time for her parents to cope with her being away. Um, and so unfortunately, back at that time, my mother had to give up her role in the foreign office once they got married, but it, obviously we still had the lifestyle. Um, so we lived in Paris and Iran and Oman and Belgium and New Zealand, and oh. therefore saw a lot of sort of other cultures and yeah, definitely different ways of life. Okay, so where were you born? Which, so I was which born group? in London, but moved to Paris when I was six weeks. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. your mother took you to Paris. So so really your growing up was in all these uh, different countries. So how multilingual are you? So, yes, not very proud of the fact that I speak a little <laughs> bit of French, a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of German. I get once I'm in one of those countries, it comes back after a while. So I did spend a year in Mexico and came away pretty fluent in, in Spanish. Um, and when we lived in Belgium, French improved a lot. So yes, it's it's all there, but needs to be worked on. 
Okay, amazing. And I understand that you've also spent uh, some time out in the in the Middle East. Yep. So as well as in the 80s with my father, when he was posted out there, my husband um, was posted to Abu Dhabi and then to Oman. So we spent six years in Abu Dhabi and then three years latterly in Oman. Wow. Okay. So so you have a world perspective really on the on, on what's going on in the world at the moment um, and, and have that um, very fascinating um, insight, I would think, uh, about different cultures. Were your parents uh, supportive of your growth and development? How did they interact with you and your uh, education? Um, so they obviously wanted to make sure that myself and my brother had fairly stable lives whilst we were moving every three to four years. So we were both sent to boarding school in the UK um, at quite a young age, but that meant that we then had the same friendships over those years. And uh, it was always quite exciting when my parents got an overseas posting, we were all always up for the next adventure. Um, but yes, all the education from the age of eight was in the UK was in the UK in boarding schools. Okay. Uh, and so how did you uh, experience that? Was that a focus um, that, you know, where was your focus? What kind of um, courses or exams did you go for? Um, so I would say I was a happy-go-lucky type. I wasn't <laughs> a hard worker at school at all. Um, it just sort of went over the top of my head. And my reports tended to say, could and should work harder, um, which, you know, that was ongoing. So I left school thinking I would do the university of life rather than official university. So spent the next 10 years sort of traveling, temping, working for a bit, traveling. Um, and my parents were moved, posted to New Zealand when I was in my mid twenties. So packed a suitcase thinking I was going to see them for a couple of weeks and ended up staying for two years. Um, and so that was sort of that was a big turning point because New Zealand's a beautiful country of many opportunities. I had fantastic jobs. I worked in the charity sector and I taught English as foreign language to refugees and I worked for the city council on events. So that sort of gave me a great skills base. Um, but it was whilst sailing in Wellington Harbour that I looked at Wellington City and thought there is just such a huge disconnect between the private sector and the rest of sort of the city. And what is it that enables them to have so much wealth and then there to be such a struggle for other people? So, yes, I sort of saw it as wanting to build bridges between the two. And so came back to university in the UK after that age 27 to study international development and business. Right. Um, and my thesis then was in corporate social responsibility. So that was in 2000 um, and the title was myth or reality. And I interviewed BP, Shell and BT executives and mid-layer and bottom-layer interviewees to find out whether CSR was sort of running through the company and what it meant in reality. Right. Okay. So it sounds like you're really, you've always been on the edge of what's interesting and new uh, in business and, and perhaps in, in international realms as well. Yeah. So sort of responsible business, I suppose, is the overall title or, yeah. Um, so yeah. that came in, I started up my own company, um, sort of in my early 
30s, having had children and I, I wanted to carry on um, in business and so set up my own company which I had for 10 years and so the idea with that was that it would always have purpose and always be socially responsible. So I was sourcing from women predominantly from developing countries around the world producing beautiful handmade textiles and ceramics for the home um, and fashion and sourced directly from them. So whether it was Nepal or Afghanistan, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Turkey. So I had often a direct relationship with the suppliers and the producers. And right. it was sort of bringing new market to them. So enabling them to reach a new market in, in the West. Very good, very good. And did you feel that by doing that, you were actually raising their economic wealth by cutting out the middleman and, and actually being the, the direct uh, supply, direct source of, of uh, their goods going to market. Yeah, so that was always the intention. Yeah. Definitely to okay. make sure that they got the fair price. Yes, okay, very good. So it's fascinating. See, in your education, you weren't particularly passionate about anything and your passion about responsible business seems to have evolved out of um, perhaps working, was it working in the charity sector in New Zealand um, and having this awareness about the equal, the, the, the non-equity between the private sector and the, and the public sector? Yeah, I think it was sort of, it was bit by bit. So at school, I took part in the Youth Enterprise Project, which I think is nationwide. Um, and we won that year for selling boxer shorts, which I had sourced through a friend's friend. Um, and so we called it Down Under and sold mainly at school, but did very, very well and had a good business model. Um, so I think that sort of introduced the concept of business and then business and adventure going hand in hand. And then through my traveling in my early 20s, so to Central America and Indonesia and Southeast Asia, other countries there, and just seeing all these beautiful textiles and handmade crafts and, you know, obviously purchasing some along the way. So again, that sort of made me see things from the small business startup point of view. And then... Yes. Yes, it was really in New Zealand, I suppose, particularly working for the city council because we work with corporate sponsors. So yes. we did like the mobile Wellington streetcar race and the BT Global Challenge um, and the Gulf Open. So that was the first time that I probably really came into contact with kind of corporate sponsorship. And yeah. Right. And the impact that they can and the impact that they can make. Yeah. And did they make an impact or did they? Or were there, was their sponsorship burnt up in useless nonsense? Well, I would say that <laughs> the priority was always to make sure that they were seen. You yes. know, that was such a big part of the marketing and the sponsorship, yes. make sure that their banners had um, pride of place. So, yes, I suppose it was just that relationship that they have in the sense that they the branding is out there, they have the money to spend on these things um, and they probably do gain a lot in return for sponsoring and supporting events. And and did, they, and did that money that they sponsored, did that actually go to, to worthy people and projects? Um, so it was less on that side, it was, it was more sports sponsorship. Okay, fine, yeah. fine I understand. Okay, so um, it sounds like in your teens, you didn't really have any future projections for your life other than to 
engage in adventure and fun. I think that was it. Yeah, <laughs> that was probably as far as I could see. We were living in Oman at the time and it was just such a wonderful country um, with a lot of freedom. So, you know, we camped in the desert and we could camp in the mountains, go to the beach. So I think that's, yeah, that was sort of, life looked pretty good at that point. Okay, very good. Um, so when do you feel that your career path or a clear career path uh, appeared for you? Was, um, there a, was it that time in New Zealand? Probably post, so having done the degree, I, I ticked off all the subjects that I wanted to learn more about. So whether it was politics, economics, that all sort of came under international development and business. Um, and so I left age 30 from university, moved straight to Abu Dhabi and set up a corporate social responsibility initiative for, um, it was then Prince Charles's International Business Leaders Forum. It was known as the PWLF. And Can you say um, that again, please? The PWIBLF. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, so I was the associate in Abu Dhabi and worked with corporates there. So with BP and with Shell and with British Airways and different lawyers and Ernst and & Young and basically set up a mentoring and, and training scheme within the higher colleges of technology. So executives would come in and, and share skills and knowledge with the students. Very good. Okay. So what does PWIBLF stand for again? Prince of Wales's International Business Leaders Forum. Okay. International Leaders Forum. Oh, very good. So you were actually um, offering mentoring for students at what level? Um, so they were higher colleges. So they were around sort of 19, 20 years of age. Okay. And how did that how did that go? Did that go well? Was it a sustained project? How long did you engage so it, in that? It went, it went very well and it was very interesting. So Abu Dhabi at the time was bringing in amortization. So they were looking to improve the skills of young people so that they could increasingly take on the jobs that expats have been doing until that time. Um, it was very interesting from the perspective of the girls being harder working and possibly brighter as a result than the boys. So the girls were very, very engaged with these schemes. Um, and the boys as well, there were a lot of take-ups and it was it ran over three years, um, very early on for any sort of CSR programme at that time, especially taking it overseas into the Emirates. Yes, but, very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me more about the girls, because um, obviously in the Middle East, girls are not always... Uh, promoted or allowed the same freedoms as, as men. So how did that work in Abu Dhabi at that time? So definitely through education, they were really sort of being lifted up. So, I mean, they're always dynamic, these women, and they always have a lot more control over their, their lives than one thinks. Um, so definitely behind closed doors, they very much kind of look after each other, entertain each other, have a lot of fun. Um, and then that was at a time where through sort of graduating in these necessary skills, they were beginning to move into the top jobs, whether it was with, within banks, the ministries. Um, and now I would say it's become a norm really to see women in high powered jobs. Right, okay. And 
in the Middle East, did you, as a woman, find your freedoms curtailed in any way? No. So very lucky with living in Oman and Abu Dhabi and sort of the wider UAE, not at all very free, you know, within sort of the parameters of respecting the culture. So always being conservatively dressed, always being respectful, but yes, free to drive, you know, anywhere, free to go anywhere. And yeah, very nice lifestyle. Okay, very good. Yes, yes. uh, I have been to Abu Dhabi and I do know that it is very nice there. Um, So I'm fascinated that obviously your your degree in international development and business led very directly to your project um, in Abu Dhabi uh, mentoring. Uh, where did you go next and was there a natural follow through or what happened what led you to your next uh, project um so the reason the program came to an end after it was four three or four years I think it was four years was because I had a young family um so it wasn't sustainable to continue with that but I did then um go back to London with my small business and that was the time that I started sourcing directly from other countries. Mm-hmm. And um, we, uh, at that time, had started sponsoring a family of Ethiopians. So this was a life-changing sort of force in our lives, very positive for us, but in very sad circumstances. So when my oldest daughter was born, I thought it would be nice for her to have a pen pal in another country. Um, and we had recently been traveling in Ethiopia, so requested Ethiopia from the charity, Sponsor a Child Charity, um, and uh, got the uh, request met, which was to sponsor a little girl called Mekdes, age four, living in Lalabella, which is a highland town, very beautiful part of Ethiopia. So for the first year, we were just doing letter writing exchanges. You know, I was sort of saying Matilda's enjoying growing up and you know getting livelier sort of thing and then a letter would come back from Mekdes saying I love playing football and I love running (laughs) so that was very sweet and then at the end of the first year I had um, a letter from the charity to say that sadly her mother had died and I knew already that her father was um, sadly not alive so realized she was an orphan Um, also knew that she had three older sisters but not a lot about them and so contacted um, the charity to say I'd like to go over to see them. Um, I wasn't allowed without a police check, um, a reference, mm-hmm. because I wasn't in the UK, I couldn't get one. So I said, well, I'm flying from Abu Dhabi. I'm leaving my own two small children. You know, please let me go. And actually, they wouldn't really allow me to. Um, but I went and through contacts in Addis at the embassy, British embassy, I was put in touch with um the office in Lalibella. So therefore got to Lalibella with a photograph of little Mekdes, but no address. Um, and met two street kids, two boys, you know, no shoes, totally so poor, but they wanted to practice their English. So they helped me to locate the girls who at that time were living in the chicken shed in their sort of family compound. So just a small sort of small garden with a chicken shed and a small mud house, but they were letting out the mud house and that was how they were making enough money to eat. 
And then two of the girls were slightly older, so they were 13 and 14, and the two little ones were five and seven. So in the mornings, one big one and one little one would go to school, and in the afternoon, they'd swap, swap over. And otherwise, they were taking care of each other and themselves and um, had, a, luckily, enough money to, to um, kind of have the food that they needed. Uh, obviously, desperately poor, sleeping on a bed of straw. Um, so the, the days that I spent with them, we talked about what they would wanted to get out of their future. Um, and even at that time, they did say that they wanted to be a pharmacist. That was the eldest. The second wanted to be a business in business. Um, third one wanted to be a nurse or a doctor. And the fourth one wanted to be a water engineer. Um, so then over the next few years, I sent packages with clothing, toothbrushes, money, went back two years later, spent another week with them. Um, I think life was still very basic and very hard. But at that time, I met another Ethiopian girl who had a sponsor, an English sponsor father, um, who I was put in touch with, happened to live two miles down the road from me in London. We'd moved back to London by then. And so from that point on, he could take whatever I needed to send them directly to them because he was going every four years. Um, he was building schools and health clinics and putting in springs. Um, so that meant that I was able to support them directly and they then did all actually go through private school education and they went on to college and university and 20 years later the oldest is a pharmacist and the second one is an accountant and the third one is a radiologist and the fourth one is a civil engineer um, wow. and because they managed to get into good professions they were allowed to put their names into the lottery to get US visas. And so the two older ones actually have been very lucky and are now living in America um, and raising their families there. So there are now four, almost five little babies, um, American babies in Nashville. Um, and the two younger ones are still in Addis Ababa, you know, making the best of life there, but it's really, it's tough. Wow. What an extraordinary story. Yeah. An yeah. extraordinary, an extraordinary impact that uh, obviously you've made. Uh, I'm struck by how amazingly clear their projections were about what they wanted for their lives and how it it has actually happened for them. Yeah, it, it's so. They were in a place of many NGOs. So I, I think probably the influence and the impact of the NGOs operating in their area maybe led them to having those ideas in the first place. Yes. Um, but also I did see their, their um, textbooks, their sort of school textbooks, and they were learning a lot about the United Nations and you know all sorts of things that I don't think we have in our curriculum at that early age. And they were learning in English, which was also amazing. Um, so I think that's probably where the seeds were planted. And then they have just worked so hard all the way through. I mean, unbelievable. and. They don't have distractions over there, you know, actually sort of their learning has been everything because they don't have fun in the sense that they don't have sports centres to join. They don't have clubs to join. They don't learn musical instruments. They didn't have electricity, you know, until recently. So I think it has just been total and utter dedica dedication to get to, to education amazing well thank you very yeah. very much that's an extraordinary story and it also demonstrates that you made a difference you know to those four children those four girls um by by your intervention your personal intervention 
Um, so that's fantastic. Um, so how has your experience with them influenced what you're doing in in um, in your life? It, has there been a, a comeback or an impact? A hundred percent. Yep. So it's you know been so rewarding, obviously, to have extended family in Ethiopia, and that's how my children and I see the girls and vice versa. So they call the girls, Ethiopian girls call me mom. And, you know, when I went over to Nashville to see the new baby, it was as the grandmother. Um, so it's very, it's a lovely relationship. Um, but I think, yes, I just took on a bit more of a mantra about being a role model, which, you know, obviously I know that I influence my own children, but to have that influence in a sense for the four girls in Ethiopia, gave me even more drive, even more purpose. So when I set up my own small business, that was always with the intention that the money that I made from that was being sort of sent back to them in Ethiopia. Um, and so in a sense, it was a philanthropic business model. And- um, Well, certainly I can see that because it's philanthropic to the to the um, people who are making the products uh, and you, you know, being a mediator to ensure that their products got to market and uh, at a fair price. And um, yeah, an amazing uh, sort of philanthropic effort all round. Yeah, exactly. And so the other thing for the for the Ethiopian girls, they were always interested to know what I was doing. So I was visiting them every two years. Um, And so obviously, just by having my own business, I thought that's sending out the right message to them. Um, and they've all wanted to dabble in all sorts of ideas along the way as well. Um, and they still, actually the youngest wants to go into business now. So that's sort of her goal. And yes, I think it was just having been a role model to them and really sort of, you know, now that two of them live in America, which is extraordinary for where they've come from, even I used to take magazines out to them and I'd always wonder whether that was the right thing to do or not, you know, sort of house and gardens and things like that, glossy magazines. And I thought, is this being unkind or, you know, but I did anyway. And actually both in the U S and in Addis, you know, the girls want to surround themselves with nice things, you know, and obviously in America, in Nashville, they are now living the all American life anyway. Um, So have very, you know, big fridges full of delicious food um yeah so no regrets in the sense that although it was a bit of a conundrum at the time you know Mm. why not why not be aspirational why not set your sights higher yeah yeah so obviously that was a prime highlight for you the the um relationship that you developed with these um the open girls and how they've developed and, and grown um would you say that that was uh, something that you looked for was was that an image of success for you at that time like, like when you were at 30 or 30 years old obviously when you were just starting your uh, sort of career after your education um sorry this is not a very clear question was it really <laughs> um success for you doesn't doesn't seem to have been you know making lots of money and being successful and having a big house and um you know having riches yourself it's more about having a social impact upon others that seems to be your image of success yeah I suppose I'd like them to have what I have you know sort of in a nutshell so I would like them to have the same level of comfort that I have um 
and the same freedoms and the same access to choices and um, same security, which really led a lot into my dissertation on my master's with the international security um, sort of taking me into the human security domain and asking the question, what can companies do to help minimize um, human insecurity in their supply chains? Right. And, and, and when did you when did you form up um, your thesis or your idea for your thesis? At what age were you then? Um, so quite advanced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you you had a career in between um, when you went back to London and you had a ten year history of running your own business where exactly. you were sourcing products. Was that immediately after that you you had this idea, or was was there some other businesses that you did? No, so it was immediately after that. I went to Kenya on holiday, um, saw women picking in the fields understood that they worked for um, you know, a large international company and just thought, I want to understand more about their lives. Um, so that was when I came back and the seed sort of grew from there. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, I couldn't do my research in person, but I had the basic sort of outline of what it was that I wanted to know and understand. And a lot of that was around aspirations. And in a sense, that related back to my experience with the Ethiopian girls. So the questions that I asked the Kenyan farmers through focus group discussions were very much based on the same questions that I'd asked the Ethiopian girls when I had first met them. Right. OK. And what did you discover in your thesis? You know, obviously, it's a great question. You know, what are the security needs of, of farmers and, and others at the bottom of the supply chain? How... Clear or unclear were the corporates who finally ended up with their product um, were about the those issues. So I compared a company's value statements against what reality looked like on the ground, and they came, they did come out well, but obviously with room for improvement. So in the sense that they were definitely approaching all of the issues that were raised, but there is still some way to go. Um, and this sort of, when I analyzed my data, um, really it sort of built, it came into three pillars. So there was financial security. Yes. Um, and if the women had financial security, which they um, really sort of broke down into, if they had obviously regular income, not just living wage, but regular income, if they had access to pension, access to savings, access to loans, and if they had insurance against climate change, then they would feel that they had protection. Right. Um, and so that sort of comes into the human security model of protection really comes through having all of those sort of financial securities in place. They said if they were financially secure, so if they were protected in that sense, then they would have well-being. They would have less stress in their lives. They would feel happier. And so in a sense, that's where they would get their resilience. They would be able to draw on their resilience and be able to bounce back better yeah. to the shocks and the stresses of life. Um, and once they had those two pillars in place, then they could think about being aspirational. So they would be building prosperity. They would live more flourishing lives. They would have more comfort and 
what that meant to them was it differed, but it might be, you know, um, buying more furniture for their house, making their house houses more um, attractive to have friends and family over to. It might be sort of feeling more aspirational for their children. Um, so it's their businesswoman, you know, and they think yeah. like we do, which is a really overwhelming reason why I want to take investors and and others who are working within this field out there to meet them because actually everybody's talking about the same thing yeah yeah so so you you've got at the bottom of the chain you've got these women and and men presumably uh wanting to rise up um to take more power for their own lives and to make an impact you know in their locality with their families and friends and everything um but requiring that uh, delivery uh, of security from the corporates that were the end uh, users of their products. How was that gap serviced, do you feel? You know, on a score of zero to 10, how do you think the Western corporations were doing in delivering that, uh, what, what the needs were? Um, so, I mean, this is the social sustainability. Yes, discussion. Undefined, undefined area. No one has the answers yet, which yeah. in a way makes me feel better about being able to speak about it. Yes. Um, so, yes, improvements are on their way. Yes, there's a lot of drilling down. And so, therefore, social impact is coming more into business models. So how can companies create more social impact, create more social value? within the supply chains at that end. Um, however, it's, you know, it's not rocket science to see that there's a very, very long way to go. But by going and seeing it in person, which I did in September of last year, I went to visit the project in Kenya and I came away feeling even more hopeful. So the company that I did my research into had come out of it looking good in the sense that they had already got values that they were implementing and working towards. Um, but when you see it on the ground in person, you do get that real sense of what diversification looks like. You know, so a farmer who can diversify their crops, have other business interests. So at that time they were um, being able to get sort of diversify into having sheep and sheep were not only good to sell, um, or for the milk, but they're also good for the mulching. So then you start to see a circular economy as well coming into it. So this is the really, this is sustainability. When you have regenerative agriculture and circular economy and everything beginning to feed into itself to enhance those livelihoods. So yeah. then they have better harvests, then they have more income. Um, and so there is a lot to be said for the training and the sort of the, yeah, the operating side of what a company can do at ground level. Yeah, yeah. So is that a sort of seven out of 10 score that you would give uh, companies overall? Because you, what I'm struck by is how many organizations you have actually worked with, you know, BP, Shell, um, uh, and lots of other companies I know from other conversations we've had, um, that are, you know, the top 500 companies in the world, and therefore they can have a huge difference, uh, a, a huge impact, you know, and make a huge difference 
to the places that they're investing in and they're supporting. So, but I often feel from my own personal experience that there's a there's a big there's a big knowledge gap and an awareness gap of actually what is actually going on and and what they're doing in terms of you know the real the real impacts or the lack of impact that, that they're doing. Yeah. So I mean, two two thoughts spring to mind. Um, one is the U- the UN says in one of their reports, you know, it is the executives who have lived in these countries, you know, throughout through their career at some point or another, who have the understanding and therefore more of the empathy and the compassion and the drive to do good. Um, so that makes a big difference. So once again, it's back to that sort of the real life experience um, really can make all the difference in terms of the understandings and then how you find the solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I suppose the big sort of elephant in the room is the will you know is the will there to change things um and i think that's probably what still remains to be seen okay what's your thought on that is the will there i'm yes i'm still dubious to be honest because that's where changing business models comes in and you know i think we're still a long way away from seeing that everything is being nudged forwards in the right way in the sense that we're all having these conversations solutions are being sought but from what i'm seeing predominantly it's happening from behind desks and behind computers and yeah. not in, and not in the field yeah um, and secondly yes the you know the corporate model and and the wealth creation you know how do you get more of the wealth down to value the those people at the bottom of the supply chain. And that's- especially, especially if those at the top want the wealth for themselves. Yeah, and shareholders. And yeah. shareholders. But but you see, what's interesting is that the executives of organisations will say that we need the wealth in order to go to the shareholders. And, and there you can see the place that investors can play in changing the mindset that says, actually, no, as investors, we don't want all the shareholders all the money to come to us we want it to go to the place where um you know the the workers are actually creating um the 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 products so i think that's the leverage that investors can play in making a difference in the model of the wealth creation and where the wealth actually ends up and well actually that is sustainability because if you don't do that you don't have your sustainable supply chains You don't have, you know, security of workers and communities. You don't have a license to operate um, and we don't have a sustainable world. I mean, that's sort of really seems to be kind of a key point to what we should be all focusing on now. You know, what what does sustainability look like in reality? And it's it is different to to business sustainability. You know, if you're looking at people and planet. Yes, indeed. Um, that's a very good point, <laughs> which obviously you need to be keep on making to uh, to corporations. Um, so I'm sorry, we don't feel that I don't feel like we've gone through a lot of these questions that I had uh, because we've got so much more interesting conversations at prep. So um, um, I can see very clearly, you know, some of the issues and causes that you've been um, championing in your life um, and in your work. Um, what would you say were some of your achievements to date? 
obviously it's not over yet so no, more to come no. but but your achievements today what what would, what are you most proud of um so sort of the, uh, there's a lot of juggling and managing going on when one has own own family um and so the fact that i have always had an interest outside of the family i think i'm really you know happy about and pleased about and i think it has led me to where i am now so even if at times i felt that it's only been a small business or you know i could be doing more um, on the career front actually each step has led me to where i am now um so no regrets on that front and Yes, I think it comes back to when I had my shop in rugby, for example, sort of inspiring others. So, again, it's something that I don't necessarily actively go out to do, but it's always very nice to hear people saying that's so inspiring. And I'm finding that a lot of my daughter's friends now are saying, you know, gosh, you're so inspiring. It's so amazing that you can go off and have these ideas and do these things. Um, and so, yeah, for, you know, definitely for women as well, you know, advocates of women and believe that we really can play our part in the direction of the world um, and making it a better place. And I think that our language, feminine language is good. And I think we should be proud and stand up more for ourselves in the way that we see things and believe in things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, again, I, I feel that within the sustainability and sort of ESG space, it is interesting. There are definitely a lot of women. Um, and increasingly, one is hearing that it's sort of the more senior men who are struggling to understand and to make the changes that are needed. Whereas, obviously, the younger generations, they totally get it. And they, you know, they could they could act on it now. There's no... It's not difficult for them because none of this is really impossible. Yes. Just a mindset. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's only the holding on to the old ideas and the old frameworks and the old values and the old business models that stops people saying, this is silly. Let's just stop that and let's take on a new model. You know, let's yeah. let's divide the wealth more equally. That would be fairer. Yeah, you know that's just a very simple uh, re-equation that one exactly. has to make. Exactly, things obviously aren't going very well. It's yeah, not yeah. very fair world. So yeah. let's find yeah, let's find another way of doing things. Yes, well, I'm very pleased that you think that women are taking more of a role and playing more their part um, in this arena, and I hope uh, that continues on. Um, coming to the end of our time, so. Let me ask you, what are the three most important lessons or pieces of advice that you've garnered from your experience that you would offer women today? Um, so probably really good to drill down into what your skill base is, because that's probably aligned with your values as well. Right. And I think maybe there's not enough work done on, on values. And so therefore understanding what really sort of drives oneself what the drivers are, what makes one feel fulfilled and happy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to have those two more in alignment, it's taken me quite a long time. That's why I'm saying it, <laughs> but I'm getting there. Um, and I mean, three brilliant bits of advice that I heard from an American ambassadress in, uh, in the UAE. And she said, network, 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 
always know your subject and always be yourself. Um, and I've always, I've held on to those. And I think the networking, especially now is so key because we are, you know, it's all about tipping points and we all need to meet the right people to help create the momentum that really is needed so importantly um, and urgently at the moment. So definitely networking and connecting with other people. And, you know, obviously that brings joy as well. Um, Very good. Yeah, and, and inspiring. You know, if one can inspire others, then that's another nice attribute. Very good. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure that anyone who's who listens to your podcast um, who is interested to network with you there'll be a connection uh, there'll be your details uh, alongside this podcast and I'm sure um, you would be delighted to connect with anyone who would like to talk about these issues with you definitely Penny thank you so much really enjoyed talking to you thank you very much it's it's been fascinating I've loved every minute of it thank you very very much Nadine for all the work that you're doing and the, the impact that you're making in the world thank you Thank you for listening to Standing in Her Power Global. What has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation? Please join our Facebook group to give us your feedback and engage in the discussions there. Share this episode with others who may be interested. Thank you for listening and we'll meet again in the next episode of Standing in Her Power Global.